You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streetcast, and we'll spend our time talking to our learning self and having fun while we learn. You can always contact the show with your questions and comments at letstalktorah at gmail.com. That's letstalktorah at gmail.com, and I will answer as many questions as I can. For some of us, school is back. It is so good to be in front of a classroom. The children are happy to be there, I think. Um, teachers are happy to be there, I know. And it's just, it's just good to be back, learning, talking, teaching. I, you know, that's what I live for. Everything else is just on the side. But, you know, when it comes to children and school, there's that certain catchphrase. You know, it's not fair, it's not fair. You treat this one this way and me that way, and a kid comes home to his mother, and this is fair, and this is not fair. And, and I saw an amazing story to teach us about fear. And I was going to save it for the end of the show, but it's, you know, it's a really powerful story. I told it to my class. We have a new assistant principal, and he happened to have been in the back of my classroom when I told the story, and, and he was like, wow. Wanted to know where I got the story from, and I gave him the location. Anyways, the story goes like this. There's a story taking place in Israel, and there was a paratrooper. Uh, his name was Erez. So as we all know, we've all seen the pictures, the videos. You have all these guys in a plane, and they all have these uh, like ropes or something. Their cables are attached to some line in the plane, and they jump out. And when they jump out, that, as far as I understand, that line... Um, opens up the parachute when there's a certain distance from the plane, and then they all float down or whatever paratroopers do. So, and I don't know how or why this works. I guess, generally speaking, you don't have to worry if I'm the you know 43rd paratrooper. Those other 42 lines are not getting in my way. Except in the case of Erez. When Erez jumped... Something happened that the the rope or the line from the paratrooper before him, when it came back, it wrapped around Erez's wrist, and I think we can figure out the rest of the story. And when he got to the ground, he realized his hand had been severed because it had gotten caught in that in that uh, line. And whoever did the searching, they found the hand. They actually surgically reattached the hand to Erez, but you can imagine that uh, that hand was not really going to be functional. At least it looked like he had a hand. It didn't even look too good in the picture. But at least, you know, he looked okay. But in truth, he only had use of one hand. I'm sure he didn't serve as a paratrooper anymore after that. But sometime later, he got married, had a child. And one day, wife and child were traveling... Um, again, in the story, it didn't say exactly where it was traveling, but probably in an area that was either borderline or in Arab neighborhoods. 
And as he's driving his, you know, little car, whatever it was, there was an ambush. And some terrorists came out and started shooting through the windshield. And there's blood all over the place. His, his wife had been injured. A child maybe had been injured. He himself had been injured. And now there's a problem because he's on a narrow road. So we all know when you're on a narrow road and you want to turn around, they call it a K-turn. I actually had to do one. I don't know if they do it anymore. But I actually had to do a K-turn when I took my, my driving test just to prove that you knew how to turn around um, when you're on a thin street and how to, how to get the car going in another direction. The problem is that it could take so long to get the car moving around. Um, yeah, you turn and hand over hand and hand over hand. And till you turn around, there's an ambush. How's it going to get out? But I didn't tell you that Erez's car, because he had had that hand injury, uh, was fitted with one of those like balls on the steering wheel. So you're using those balls on the steering wheel, you can rip around that steering wheel so fast back and forth, way faster. You have much better control and faster control than you would ever have if you were just a regular person. So he actually was able to use that ball, spin the car one way, spin it back the other way, and zoom out of there. And they got to the hospital. And they, of course, all lived happily ever after. We like happily ever after stories. Um, but really, really, the only reason he was able to get the car out so quickly was because he had that special apparatus on the steering wheel, which he only had because his hand, of course, had been severed in that fluke crazy accident as a paratrooper. So you can imagine, right? Let's let's back up on the story now. You can imagine that Erez, probably a super athlete, anybody's a paratrooper, these are soldiers, these are athletes, these are, you know, these are men. Right? You can only imagine that here's a guy who thinks in his mind he's going to be that soldier and that and the paratrooping and all the stuff they do and the climbing and the and the and the fighting and whatever the whole projection of such a life, and now his his hand was severed. What kind of life am I gonna have? I'm a cripple. I only have one hand. It's not fair, God. God, it's not fair. It's not fair. Why did you do that to me? But years later, right, from the time his hand being severed till the story with the car was not six months later, right? Years later. And now has a large family. Um, you think when he was saved, he's still saying not fair? Right? You think maybe that's not part of the vocabulary anymore? So I told my class, I said, when we think of fear and not fear, you know, we're living in the moment. We're saying this is fear, this is not fear, because we don't get to see the whole picture. Now, as a student in a classroom, the teacher hopefully sees the picture. The, t- the teacher had a reason why you got called on, you didn't get called on, and you have to sit over here, and, and this one gets punished by losing a recess, and this one has a writing assignment, and this one we ignore. There is overall, certainly not like God, right? We're teachers, we're not gods. You know, some of us may think we are, but we, of course, are not. But overall, right, there should be hopefully some type of reasoning. We can't explain it to the children all the time. And God certainly is not explaining it to us. But 
it happens all the time. There's there countless stories we would open our mind, and because an accident happened, because something happened, we missed a plane, we, 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 we missed a taxi, we missed a ride, things happen in this world. Right? And when things are not going well, car broke down, couldn't make it to a meeting, when things are not going right, we are so fast, so fast to sit there and say, God, it's not fair. God, why are you doing this to me? I can't understand this. While in, in reality, God has a plan. We just don't always know. So, so we talk about fear, beginning of the school year, what's fear, what's not fear. You know, if we would only recognize we don't see the whole picture, we would not have a problem of fear or not fear. Okay, that's our, that's our test sometimes. What's fear, what's not fear, that's the way life goes. So I think that's really a good lead-in. I wanted to talk, you know, Rosh Hashanah is coming up in a week and a half. Right? We have today is, uh, it's obviously Thursday. We have all of next week. And then the following uh, Monday night already is Rosh Hashanah. High holidays. So what's, what's happening next year, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the calendar year. So the, the calendar will turn and we will go from 5781 to 5782 and that will take place. The first day of Rosh Hashanah, calendar changes. This year, there's another major change when we turn the page on the calendar. And that is the Shemitah year begins. Now, certain laws of Shemitah may already be in effect, but that's only if you're a, a physical farmer. There may be certain things in your field you can no longer do. I don't want to get into that. That gets too complicated. But the Shemitah year begins starting in a week and a half from now. Now again, for the most part, those of us who do not live in Israel, Shemitah year almost doesn't affect us. Perhaps we get some produce from Israel. There may be um, some, some issues. But overall, as far as land, the Shemitah year has almost no bearing on our life. Now, uh, we could have this conversation next year at this time. That happens to be when the Shemitah is over, there's a second law that comes into effect, and that is that outstanding loans are null and void. Now, that doesn't mean that if I'm the borrower, I can just imagine going to the bank. Yeah, Chase Bank, you know that uh, $300,000 mortgage I got? Well, Shemitah's over. Um, you can't collect from me. So, first of all, they're a bank. They're not an individual. And second of all, they're not Jewish. So And there could be three or four other reasons, so you can't do that. But if you are a regular um, Jewish person and you have lent out money, not so simple. Well, first things first. First rule is you cannot collect on loans when the Shemitah is over. The Torah actually says that when you know Shemitah is coming and you know that you won't be able to collect on loans, if somebody comes for a loan and you don't give the loan... So you're actually um, transgressing a uh, a command in the Torah to that you got to lend money when it when it's time for the shemitah season. You lend money. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to pay back. You should pay back, but the lender cannot collect. A loan came, but because it was a problem, you know, it's people are not as good as they should be. I told you this story myself once. Um, when I bought my house many years ago, so I needed the, the down payment. So I went around to some friends and I borrowed money, and six months later, they, I paid them all back. 
But then I started having this imagination that there was one guy I didn't pay back. The problem was I wasn't even sure if I borrowed money from him. And it wasn't a lot. $500 wasn't like a big loan. But I just couldn't remember to save my life. Did I borrow or not? And he wasn't around so often. Anyways, I see him in synagogue one morning. Go to him after synagogue and I say, um, I say, doctor. He was a doctor. Probably still is a doctor. I said, um, I can't remember if I borrowed money from you. But if I borrowed money, I want to pay you back. So he says to me, Rabbi, I don't remember either. But if I would have lent you money, it was not a loan. It was a gift. But you asked for a loan. So I said, here's a loan. So whether he remembers or not, I have no idea. He said it was a gift. I accepted. But part of the idea is, you know, it's an attitude. When somebody is lending money to a person who is poor, usually people borrowing or people that obviously do not have enough money in their pocket at the time, when you are lending money to somebody, a little bit you need to know in the back of your mind, this guy might not have the money to pay me back. So if you can't afford to make that loan, sometimes you shouldn't be making it. As if you can't afford that if the guy can't come through that it's a gift, maybe you have the wrong attitude in the loan. Perhaps. Not for sure, but it's a it's certainly something to think about. So that part of Shemitah does affect. Um, most of the commentaries feel that, that the forgiveness of loan is the end of Shemitah, so that's next year Ashana time. There is one of the commentaries who says it starts now even, and therefore to protect a, a lender who needs to protect himself, the great Hillel created a, a special document called a prosbol. It's an Aramaic word. I don't even think there's a good English word for it. But the prosbol is a document that says that the court will collect all your loans. And since it's the court collecting that individual, so the the forgiveness of Shemitah doesn't take place. Okay. But I, okay, so that's to give us a, a, a beginning of Shemitah. So what exactly is Shemitah? So first of all, you need to know it's, it's every seven years. In the agricultural rules and regulations, in the Torah agricultural rules, for those living in the land of Israel, there is a seven-year farming cycle. That cycle affects the Shemitah, which means the fields have to lay fallow, and it also affects the... We'll call it taxes, if you like that word. Um, it also affects the taxes. What do I mean by taxes? So the priests, the Kohanim, work in the temple. The Levites work in the temple. They have to be supported. They have no land. They have no source of income. Their job is to work in the temple. Their job is to know the laws and the rules and regulations. And, by the way, their job is to be like the rabbis, to be out there teaching people, helping people, guiding people. So they have to be supported. So when the farmer brings in his crops and puts them in the silo, before he's allowed to take any for himself or to eat any of it, he has to first give a 2% to the priest, whichever one he wants, really, but they probably split it up. He then gives 10% to the Levite, and the Levite, by the way, takes 10% of that and gives it back to the Kohen. And then there's a, th- a second 10%, so we're talking around 21%, that the farmer has to bring up to Jerusalem and eat in Jerusalem. 
That is the basic tax structure that the Torah sets up. It has nothing to do with kings collecting taxes. Uh, that is the basic tax structure, or the Trumas and Meis, as we call it, in year one, two, skip year three, four and five of the seven-year cycle. In year three and six, um, we replace the bringing up the food to Jerusalem and it becomes a 10% tax that you have to give to poor people. So that takes place. That's the switch. In other words, what we give to the Kohen, what we give to the Levi, that's the same. What we give to, what we bring up to Jerusalem, that changes in year three and six. In year seven, it's Shemitah. In Shemitah, the land lays fallow. The land is ownerless. Anything growing is open season. Anyone can come in and take. If you put a fence around your field and you lock the front door, then all your produce becomes forbidden. There's no planting. There's no plowing. There's no pruning. There are certain things you can do just to make sure things don't get ruined. If it needs to be watered. Um, but to to fix the field, to make the field better, that's off limits. And again, poor people can come and take and then when we get to the point during the season, and they actually know this to the day, when there's no apples left for argument's sake in the field for the animals, or there's no oranges, or there's no... Uh, Vetzel's a hard example. Um, but there's no olives, or no grapes. Once that happens, if you happen to have that fruit in your house, you have to actually take it out of your house and make it ownerless. We don't sell the produce. Now, as you happen to have apple trees in your backyard, you can't go eat, or somebody else can't come into your field, collect the apples, and start selling them as a business. Maybe if he needs money for a couple meals, that he could do. But overall, we're not selling produce. How do they sell things in Israel? Look, it's a modern society, right? We're not farmers, right? So you could go to the marketplace. Like, what do they do? So there's a few different options of how they make it work. Um, one's called Eitz Abed, and there's there's two basic ideas. You can have non-Jewish farmers. There are ways where officially you can hire people, and you're only paying them for their work. You're not paying them for profits. It is very very debatable exactly what's best. Uh, Jerusalem has their feeling. Uh, B'nai Brak has their feeling. So there are ways to get fruits and vegetables to the market. Um, it's a little more difficult. And those, all that produce will have a certain holiness to it. You can't throw anything out. Even the peels have to like wrapped up special and allowed to rot. There's a lot, a lot of rules how we treat all these fruits and vegetables. Now, something interesting to think about, by the way, um, only God could create the concept of Shemitah. In other words, if you were going to make up your own list of rules and regulations— and you wanted to pretend you were a god, you would never create a Shemitah concept. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. In other words, in the days, nowadays, they use all these fertilizers. I don't even know if they let fields lay fallow in America. But in the old days, the farmers knew you had to keep switching fields because the nutrients would get zapped out of the field. So you did it two years, three years, you wouldn't wait seven years to let all the fields they found. It's, it's just really too long. That's problem number one. Problem number two is the God promises 
that if you'll keep the Shemitah, and as if, if you know that you're going to keep Shemitah the seventh year, God promises that the sixth year could grow upwards of triple the amount to take care of the sixth year and the seventh year and into the eighth year till you get your next crop growing. The fields don't work that way. By the sixth year, the field is at its weakest, not at its peak, because you've zapped out all the minerals, all the nutrients. So for, for the Torah to make a command that you must let your field they fallow in the seventh year, but don't worry because in the sixth year it will be a super increase, only God could do that. No thinking person could ever make such a promise. And what's fascinating, if we told the story before, back I believe it was in the 50s, there was a kibbutz called Kemimius, and they kept Shemitah. Now, the problem was the land that was uh, more of a socialist, still a socialist country. But uh, Israel then is a socialist country, and you can't just not plant for a year. As they keep records of, of how much you're producing every year, you can't just not produce. We're going to take the land away from you. And they said, no, we're going to keep Shemitah. You'll see we'll do better than everybody else. And in the records, it shows, let's say, every farm produced 600 boxes or whatever boxes means of produce per year. All of a sudden, Comius in that sixth year produced like 1,800, triple. Like, and everybody else was 600. They were like so way and above everybody else. They said to the government, said, look, we told you. If you let us let the fields lay fallow, we keep speaking to the seventh year, our sixth year will be so way and above, we'll still be ahead of the game. So what are you going to say? Right? They're running the farm. They're clearly way ahead of everybody else. So God makes that promise, and we see that promise really, really comes true. One of the other beautiful things that, that comes out because of keeping Shemitah is it forces the farmers to trust God. Right? In other words, the Torah is saying you can't plant, you can't grow, you can't harvest, So, but that's your livelihood. So if that's what's going on, obviously God is taking care, but you need to have that trust. So it's like a forced trust on the farmer. Now, nowadays we say on the farmer, how many farmers are there already? You know, nowadays. Uh, I mean, there's the land is being farmed. But overall, the percentage of people involved in farming is minuscule. But you go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, more, everybody was a farmer. It was, it was the minority that were not into the farming. So this was a forced trust. When I say the farmer, we, we look at him like, you know, like a cowboy, like there's six of them. But in reality, right, everybody was farmers. You're right, the Cohen wasn't a farmer, and the Levy wasn't a farmer, and, and yet a few businessmen running the general store, right? But, but overall, everybody was a farmer. So the farmer is the one that becomes the one to show his trust in God. So I, I just thought it would, it would be good to mention there's a lot of interesting fundraisers that go on now. And the question is, are they, are they appropriate? So um, many people think it's a great idea, right? You know, I will buy a small piece of property in Israel, and since I'm not planting on it, I am keeping this mitzvah. It's a great fundraiser. $180 or $360, and you own a piece of land, or you own a flower pot with a hole in it, and you are keeping Shemitah. So it's cute. You know, it's, it's trendy. As a fundraiser, it seems fantastic. But it really, really misses the boat. 
because that's not what you're supposed to be doing, right? What you're supposed to be doing is if you're, if you're a farmer, then you have a command to keep Shemitah. You're not a farmer, right? As somebody said last night, you want to know how much reward you're going to get for keeping that Shemitah? The $360 that you paid. The three sixty is the three sixty. It doesn't matter, right? You can give it to charity for the same price, because that's not what was intended. You want to give charity to help Shemitah. What you should be doing is something called Karen Ashvias. Karen Ashvias is a fascinating charity, where what they do is these farmers that that have right. They're in Israel. They're not working for a year. They got machinery. They got loans. They got mortgages. There's a, there's a lot of expenses that go into a farm. So to take a year off, the bank doesn't say to you, "Okay, so uh, you took a year off of Shemitah, no problem. Don't pay your, don't pay for that uh, combine machine for a year. We're okay with that, right? Who are we fooling? That's not happening, right? So what we what we can accomplish is the farmer who wants to keep Shemitah, but he can't afford to, that's a charity. It's called Karen Ashvias, I think, um, where that's, that would be a real charity during the time of the Shemitah year where the farmer who cannot afford to be keeping Shemitah, but he's doing it anyways. So when we give that charity to allow him to keep Shemitah, that, it would seem, is the best way to do to, if you want to give charity to Shemitah, it seems that would be the way to go. That would be what we want somebody to do. Because then you're involved. Then you're involved in helping somebody who really keeps Shemitah. Not buying a flower pot with a hole in it. Because that really is just a gimmick. It's cute. Um, sounds good. Perhaps feels good. Um, oh, they give me the sign I have two minutes. Whoa, they made me do a long show today. So whatever you guys want, man. We can always roll on to the next one. But in any case, since they're giving me um, an extra two minutes, it looks like. So let's say uh, it's the beginning of this week's Torah portion. Let's let's give it a little bit of time because it touches on to, um, again, food. And that is the command of Bikurim. Um, the Torah talks about Bikurim actually in the Torah portion of Mishpatim. But at the beginning of this week's Torah portion, it actually talks about the actual bringing of the Bikurim. And the farmers, again, not in the Shemitah year, but in any other year, and I'm not calling this a tax, even though technically you have to give, but you only have to give a minuscule amount, so that shouldn't even count as a tax. Um, So the farmer will go ahead and he will take his first fruit and he will put a sign on it when it's ripe. He'll put it in a basket and he'll get it ready. And all the farmers in the area are informed that they should gather together in the main city. They're going to get in the capital city of the area. Imagine a county. So each county will have its capital city and they'll sleep in the street. And they will parade with thousands of people marching towards Jerusalem. And there'll be music playing and they'll have sacrifices they'll be bringing and and uh, it's just a, it's a, the, the atmosphere is just amazing. And they march their way up. And no matter how important you are, how wealthy you are, you can be a king. When you get to the Temple Mount, no slaves are carrying your fruit. You carry your basket on your own shoulder. That boy has me in class. Can you carry it in front? You carry it in front. I think it was normal to carry it on the shoulder. And they're going to go into the Temple and there'll be the priests there and the Levites. And, and there'll be thousands of people 
greeting you and appreciating that you came. And you'll go into the temple and you'll go to the Kohen. You'll actually read from this week's Torah portion. Those Originally, those that didn't know how to read would um, would have somebody read it for them. People got embarrassed. He knows how to read. He doesn't know how to read. So they made it like we have with a regular Shabbos, with a Torah portion. You have somebody responsible to read for everybody. Nobody's embarrassed. Even if you say you know how to read, you can go ahead. And guys, you can put on the music, man. You know, I know how to do this. There we go. That gives a base idea. Bikurim, I have a great crew in the back. They're not new. They're just not used to me. We got Andy and Al in the back, and we appreciate it. The music's playing, of course. I hope you enjoyed it. Short and sweet. Thank you to one of the sponsors. Listen, you know, I can't do without you. I hope I live to the food for thought. Until next time, you've been listening to, to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.